Good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to the morning worship service here at Forest Heights Baptist Church. We're going to begin this morning by standing and singing, Lift High the Name of Jesus.
Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in you and through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your wonderful grace and love and and Lord, for reaching down and touching our hearts and our lives and allowing us the opportunity to respond in faith. And I just thank you that by responding in faith, we can receive your wonderful gift of grace and be brought into your family and come together as a community of believers like we are today. And, and Lord, worship you in spirit and in truth. So I just pray that as we have come together that our minds, our hearts, our lives will be focused on you and you alone, that we will pray for one another and ourselves, that we might have our eyes open to you and, and what you have to say to us, and we just pray that we'll respond in a way that will just bring honor and glory to your name and, and Lord, peace and joy and, and uh, happiness to our lives also. So thank you for this time, this opportunity, and we just pray that throughout it you'll be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand as we continue our praise service by singing Standing on the Promises. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises
It's good to be with you again. Amen. Gradually growing back in number, and we want to remain safe, but we're uh, we're glad to uh, have the ones that could come out today. And Julianne, it's good to see you. Boy, I tell you what, uh, driving all the way from Delonica. Wow. Let's, uh, man, now that's commitment there. Amen. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. We, we are glad to have you. Uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to be looking at spiritual relationships, but Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 6, are the ones that we're going to be identifying today and speaking uh, about and and what the Lord is trying to uh, reveal to us. And so let's just pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and our minds as only He can, because He's the one that, that does it. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's going to be our key today. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Let's pray. Father, just pray for your grace. You tell us it's sufficient. We believe it for all things, and we just pray that it will sufficiently be at work in our midst today, opening our minds, our hearts, our eyes to your truth, helping us to see what you would have us to learn, how you're speaking to us, and adhering to it today. In Jesus' name, amen. While I was serving in this community in in, um, North Georgia, there was a a church, First Baptist Church there in that community, and they had a reputation of a couple of guys in that church being pranksters. You you wouldn't know anything about that, I'm sure, but they, uh, they were pranksters. And they were playing jokes on each other a lot of times, and their family would sit together, and, and so... During the service, and the story's still told up there, during the service, right in the middle of the preaching, there's, there was always one of them that had, a, had trouble staying awake. And he dozed off. And so the other one who was sitting next to him punched him and he said, so-and-so, the preacher's called on you to stand and close in uh, the service and, in prayer. And so he stood and started praying. And everybody just, I mean, you know, they, they, you know, a lot of them laughed, a lot of them giggled. They knew what was going on. Of course, I don't know if they ever got the service back or not, uh, the preacher. But I'm sure some that were visiting probably thought, where in the world has that guy been, you know? Well, this is exactly probably how Jesus felt about the disciples. They're coming to him, and what are they saying? Who then is greater or greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what has he been doing? He's been speaking about greatness. They just haven't caught on. But let's don't give them too hard a time because they're on that side of the cross and resurrection. We're on this side. And not only that, greatness... Is it not talked about in our society and culture today? I mean, isn't it a big term to, to look at and be a part of and want to be a part of? I mean, Tom Peters uh, wrote a book, like many others, uh, saying what makes a cooperation, what makes an industry, what makes a business great? 
And then, you know, we think about history and we think about Rome and how great it was considered. Greatest at one time. We uh, think about people like sports people, like Johnny Unitas, who was considered during his time the greatest quarterback that ever played the game. Or what about Babe Ruth? The greatest as far as home runs came when he played. And so as we look at all of this and we, we begin to, to look at the greatness, we think about great cities and, and great businesses and great ball players and, and uh, great uh, executives and, and, you know, just this person great, that person great, this team great, that team great. Why? Well, we think about this, and we, we think about them because they are great now. But one thing that we need to remember is the nature of greatness is temporal. It is ephemeral. It is temporary. It is passing. It is fragile. What looks great and seems great today can also look insignificant tomorrow. Not only is greatness temporary, but it's also illusional. It isn't what it appears so often as. You can look at someone who was considered great at one time, and then you look at them later and you say, what was so great about them? I don't see what they saw in that person as being great. And not only that, but you, you, know, you, can, you can look at uh, greatness also as being invisible. It has that invisibleness to it. We look back in history and we see people back in history and what they did. And now... They weren't considered back then as great, but now we see what they did, and, and some people say, boy, they were great, and they're, they're considered great, and they're, they're wrote about as, as great now. We know that greatness is something that can mislead. It can mislead us in terms of our human perspective as much as it can also inform us. So Jesus teaches on greatness as the disciples come to him, and this is a great lesson for them to learn. They needed to learn it. And believe me, they learned it after the cross, after the resurrection. So the condition for entering God's kingdom, he uses that as greatness. Look in Matthew 18, once again, 1 through 4. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child up, and he brought the little child forward to himself and set him before them. Maybe they were in a circle or a semicircle. And he says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, pointing to this little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself, and you need to underline, highlight, whatever, himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We know that greatness, as we've talked about, deals with today and our day and time and in the past has dealt with ambition. As long as we're here in this sinful, fallen state that we're in, there's going to be that drive, that desire to be great. It involves doing great things and it also involves having a great name. So Jesus has been teaching his disciples what true greatness is. And it comes through humility, he said. Twice Jesus has informed them outright, straightforward, about what is his destiny. And that involves greatness. It involved the cross, or it involves the cross, suffering and dying, and of course they missed the last part, being raised again. 
Now they come to Jesus after him telling them this two direct times and also teaching about it before then. And they say, who is going to be greatest in your kingdom? It's as though they have missed his teaching. Have you ever done that? Missed the teaching? They've been asleep during his preaching, it seems. Peter, James, and John, they saw the transfiguration. Christ in his glory. They saw a very clear declaration there of Jesus as being the one who will bring a kingdom. But they missed the part about what was involved in coming and making that kingdom available to them. And what was involved was Christ dying and suffering, and they didn't want to accept that. And that part, they had the old teaching of of a great uh, leader coming in and taking over politically and, and making them great. And so they had the kingdom down, his kingdom, but they didn't have what really made it great. And what really made it great was one of the key ingredients about entering into the kingdom. And so this kingdom that Jesus is speaking about involves a spiritual kingdom. During that present age, during this present age, it involves a church, the called out ones as we talked about those who were born again they've been made alive spiritually the disciples had evidently been in a heavy discussion here with one another to find out who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God they had the kingdom down and they wanted to know who was going to be the greatest and here Jesus illustrates greatness with the condition or by the Uh, condition of entering into the kingdom of God they probably wanted to be told something like hey you chose us because you saw something great in us a greatness there so who's going to be the greatest Peter could have even thought hey man you changed my name you called me out as a fisherman To be great, a solid rock, another Caesar. I'm the greatest. But this was not what God was teaching. This was not God's way. It says, for God chooses uh, weak things of the world to shame the powerful. And God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise kingdom of God, Matthew is a fr- or kingdom of heaven is a phrase that Matthew uses some 32 times and it's synonymous with kingdom of God. So what does that mean? That means that there's a sphere and there is a ruler. The kingdom is God's kingdom. He is the one who is in charge. And He rules by his principles. Entering the kingdom means coming under sovereign rule. And that sovereign rule is of the king, God the Father. So we see that to come into the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells them it must be through faith. It's got to be involved. He called this child forward. And we're going to talk about this in in a moment, this, this thing about faith. And this faith is something that is involves a person who realizes that, you know, they need help. They need their there's dependency out there, dependency on someone else. It means helplessness, hopelessness, in need of someone greater and helpless as sinners is what Jesus is talking about born outside his kingdom spiritually dead that need to be born again made alive and that could only happen 
by way of him. We must enter, he says, as a child. In verse 2, we're told that Jesus called a child to himself, set him before him, and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a child. One might ask, well, how can you become like a child again? We aren't children anymore. You remember in John chapter 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus replied, Well, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So how can we become like children so as to enter the kingdom of God? As older people, we're not simple anymore, are we? We're complex individuals. In other words, we have our own desires. We have our own voices. We have our own ambitions. We have our focuses. They're all different. As teenagers, as college children, or kids, excuse me, young adults, uh, as older adults, as even senior adults, we feel somewhat powerful in mind and ability to do our own thing. And the real danger for us comes from leaving childhood and when we stand on our own two feet. Our culture teaches us to get an education, which isn't bad, to get a job, we all need that, so that you can do something you want to do. Okay, that's great. All you have to do is set your mind and do it yourself. Who's being left out there? God. It's all good for, I mean, all of those are fine. But we've got to realize that going to college, having the mind that we have, studying, we wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for God. Graduating, getting a job, we wouldn't be able to perform that if God hadn't given us body and mind to perform this. Having family and raising children, we wouldn't be able to do that if God had not provided the system to work like that. And so all of this is good, but if you're not careful, the transition can move a person to independency, and that independency can be independent of God. So our thinking, our way of life, we don't depend on God. We just do our thing. But who is the king, the ruler? of the kingdom, God. And we've got to remember that. You see, adulthood, if we're not careful, can be very seductive. As adults, we are really learning many lessons which are, can be opposite to what it means to enter the kingdom of God and live a kingdom life. We wonder why so many people have a hard time entering the kingdom of God. Well, you've got to enter like a child. And if you're proud and if you're self-sufficient and if you're self-willed and if you're independent, you'll say, what? I don't need that. To trust in someone that I can't see, to, to do what that word says to do, I've been doing just fine. Why do I need that? You see, a lot of times we miss the point when we're witnessing to someone and we say, why in the world didn't they receive? It's because they're dead spiritually and they're living independent of God. A child represents utter need. A child represents an utter inability to take care of himself or herself. A child represents powerlessness, humility. They know their place, their dependence, their vulnerability. 
their need to trust. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance, being sure, of things hoped for, grabbing hold of what is hoped for as something that's real. It's not something that's just nebulous. It's something real. The conviction of things not seen. We know that he's real. This is the description of a child, a little child. A child recognizing their own inabilities and vulnerabilities and knowing that they cannot uh, meet their own needs by themselves. And so they trust the Father to provide for them, to be able to provide for them and to provide for them. Jesus once said, if a child asks the Father for bread, will he give him a stone? And, of course, the answer was no, as far as Jesus was concerned. The Father will naturally meet the child's need. The Father will feed him. He won't starve him. The Father will clothe him. He won't allow him to go without clothing and freeze to death. He will teach him and instruct him and uh, you know, allow him to be guided and not misguided. He will take care of him and protect him and not allow him to have to fend for himself, which he couldn't do. And so what is being taught here, Jesus is teaching the disciples what greatness is by way of the condition needed for entering the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The, king, the condition is faith. It involves a humility, a humble faith, a dependence like that of a child for provision and protection in life. In the same way that a child trusts the Father's Word, believing all will be taken care of, he must also trust Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. You see, faith is not nothingness. Not believing in nothingness. There is a theology, isn't there? And that theology, as far as what we're talking about here, involves the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It involves the fallenness and sinfulness of man. It involves the need for a Savior. It involves Jesus Christ who came and, and died for our sins. It involves grace, the person of grace. There is the God who has provided the grace, and there is the God who will take care of us as we come to him for this grace. And understanding that, we cannot attain this righteousness that is demanded apart from Christ, trusting him by faith. You say, does a child understand all of that? No, but they understand that Jesus, they're a sinner and that Jesus died for their sins. And they just thrust themselves upon him, believing that he can take care of them because he's provided for them. But with this understanding of grace, there's got to be that humility, thrusting themselves upon him, dependence upon him, faith in him. The important thing to understand is that we must come to the Lord with this childlike faith. And we, we really need to continue with this faith, depending on God. Recognizing that God, oh yeah, going about our business, but recognizing, as I said earlier, that God is the provider for all of this. And so the important thing is faith here and humility going together. There must be faith because you see, one can have the knowledge of these facts about Jesus and not have faith, not have trust. That faith justifies the sinner. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works lest anyone could boast. So the person that believes that the Father will do what he says he will do and will be able to do it, He's the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to understand that once converted, we're not to become self-sufficient. As I said earlier, 
We should live always recognizing our insufficiency and our dependency upon the Lord. To be in God's kingdom is to be God's kingdom people. And we're to live by faith in humility, dependence and trust in Him. We cannot come into His kingdom without entering as a child. So the question from the disciples dealt with greatness. And Jesus says to the disciples, whoever then humbles himself as a child is the greatest in heaven. Trust, humility, makes the person great. The one who trusts the greatest degree is the one who will what? Understand God the most. Why? Because you'll be in that study and that dependency upon him day by day. It is the one who knows his need profoundly and knows God's provision is sufficient. This person, he says, is the greatest, the one who humbles himself. Now, the child in this passage is not representing innocence. We know that every child is fallen. Instead, the child represents humility. And so the disciples were coming as these they thought vice rulers and who will be the greatest. They still had not gotten the full picture. And so later they do, after the, the, the resurrection. But this side of heaven, they, they're still learning. They're still growing as far as that and understanding more and more. And that is how the early church was birthed. It was through this humility and faith. Jesus promised concerning the, the entering of God's kingdom and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus is telling his disciples that the kingdom of heaven is made up of people who have humbled themselves just like you. So I'm not looking for who's greatest, you know. I'm just looking for people who come humbly bowing and you receive them that way also. Quit trying to play who is greatest. So all he's wanting is those that come like when my children were growing up and, and he's, you know, you'd be in the pool and, and you'd say, okay, jump, jump. And they'd jump into yarns. They didn't know how to swim, but they'd jump into yarns because they believed that you would catch them and you would keep them safe. And that's the way it is with, with Jesus. We're just jumping into his arms, believing that he's going to take care of us, making those moves, doing this, doing that, trusting him. There is a warning concerning the kingdom of heaven, though. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it's better for him that the heavy millstone is hung around his neck and that he is drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, this is very important. Very few references to drowning in the Scripture. We see that Jewish people during this day, for the most part, weren't seafaring people, you know. I mean, they did fishing and all this, but they weren't seafaring. And one of the worst things for them was a picture of drowning. And then when the Romans executed people this way by tying a stone around their neck and tying their, bounding them up and taking them out in the water and drowning them, they even thought that worse than their crucifixion. What an awful way, a horrible way to die, or as bad as that. And so Jesus is telling his listeners that suffering such a terrifying death would be better than causing one of his children to sin or stumble in some way. So you can see the point he's making it. I mean, that's a strong emphasis there. This picture represents and illustrates a child of God, and Jesus here is, is including Stumbling that involves moral and spiritual stumbling. And the stumbling that entices, entraps, and influences a believer in a way that leads him or her into sin. Or that makes it easier for him or her to sin. And what were they doing? They were making it easier, arguing about this for one another to sin right here. There was envy, there was jealousy, and there was anger. 
probably arising. Well, I'm greater. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. No, I am, you know, and this type of thing. We could just imagine what was being said. So Jesus tells us that it's dangerous and it's a dangerous thing to seduce someone or to tempt someone or to lead someone to stumble. A husband could lead his wife into stumbling by doing something. Maybe, maybe they, they, uh, they're figuring up taxes and she, uh, she does the taxes and he says, okay, claim this. And she says, well, you know, we can't claim this because we didn't have this. We'll claim it anyway, you know. It's right off, and we can do it, and the government, uh, we can hide it, and government won't ever know. Well, what's he doing? He's seducing her into uh, what? Tempting her to, to stumble. A boy taking a, a girl out uh, for a date, telling her that he loves her when in reality all he's concerned about is the physical aspect of it trying to talk her into doing something that she doesn't want to do. You know, both of them Christians maybe. And then also Paul warns us uh, not to provoke children to wrath. That comes in many different forms. Favoritism, demanding unrealistic achievements. Boy, today, isn't that going on? Wow. Wanting to make our children what we weren't or greater than us just for our sakes, not for them. Critical, overprotective, oh my goodness. Or the other way, overpermissive. Frustrating and exasperating the, the children, driving them to anger or some other emotional mishaps neglecting them showing little interest to their opinions and their concerns not listening to them this can also go on with spouses and friends and co-workers and even fellow church members usually this happens by insensitivity maybe a lack of love and unkind actions. Bad examples can cause the child of God to stumble. And do you know it may not even involve a word being said? Just actions. As we talked about a few weeks ago from Romans 14, it can be with the group that's licensed, free to do anything, and the legalists. Well, these are what I've been taught, whether they're scriptural or not, but it causes me to stumble. You know, eating food. What Paul said, hey, nothing wrong with it. Uh, offered sacri uh, sacrifice to idols, but don't do it if it causes your brother to stumble. Not regarding the consciences of the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We can even cause someone to sin by failing to lead them into righteousness. Did you know that? Letting them continue in their sin. Not saying anything to them. To keep God's truth to ourselves and not share our spiritual insights and experiences with others to help them grow. That can be a sin. The one who would mislead can cause these others, these converts, to stumble and the judgment of God comes upon them and it, when it does, it will be more horrible, he says, than you can imagine. What he's telling us, he's saying, hey, we need to just be conscious of the fact of how precious these are to me. The one who would mislead and cause these converts to stumble, the judgment of God will come upon them. Here again, like the latter part of chapter 17, Jesus speaks of causing another to stumble. Jesus revealed his attitude towards his followers 
by teaching how we are to treat one another. In verses 5 and 6, we should treat one another as we treat Jesus. In other words, if he was here in the flesh, how would we treat him? That's how we're to treat one another. Welcome implies every aspect of caring for the other person, accepting them, loving them, providing for them as gracious host welcome a guest. That's how we're to do it. How are we as a church, as individuals, faring in this area? It's easy to cause someone stumbling. It's easy to cause one to slip. Well, Jesus, he doesn't take that lightly, so what should we do? We should not take it lightly, and we should be more conscious about that. We should be more aware of what we say, what we don't say, what we do, what we don't do. And as Wearsby's book on, I believe, Philippians, I remember when it came out years ago, before some of these were born, I think, but uh, years ago, and he, he said, joy. You think about Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. That's it, a believer. But that others and yourself we misspell the word a lot of times, don't we, by the way we live. <laughs> I know I do. I don't know about you, but I, I've had trouble with it. So we as a church, we need to make a conscious effort to try and be all that we need to be. Pastor, flock. Always putting Jesus first. He's a ruler. We're the rulees. But we're children of his. And so let's put others second, thinking about others. Because when we accept them, when we do right by them, we're doing right by him. Wow. And then ourselves. God will take care of us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, if there's anyone that needs to come, maybe kneel at the altar or whatever, we're, we're going to have this time of invitation. I thank you for the ones that were able to be here today. And Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for allowing um, us this opportunity to let you deal with our hearts and our lives today, to bring us closer to you, to teach us something, to, uh, to move in our lives in areas that need to be uh, corrected or... Uh, need to be strengthened, whatever it might be. And God, um, help us to continue along that way. Help us keep our eyes open to the truth and ears open to the truth and may our hearts be ready to uh, do what you would have us to do at all times. Father, we fall, we, we stumble, we, um, we cause others to stumble. Just help us, God. Help us to be the, the Christians who do the right thing, say the right thing, honor you in all that we do, and, and with that, encourage others to not only walk by faith in you, but also to keep them from stumbling and, and then to bring, help bring others into your flock by witnessing to them and sharing with them and our lifestyle not contradicting what we're sharing with them. Thank you, God. Help us to be all that you would have us to be. And Lord, when we fail, help us to recognize that, confess it, and make it right. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. God's dealing with your heart, your life. If you'd like to come, you come. I have decided to follow
turning back. Let's go forward this week just glorifying the Lord as we allow Him to work in us and through us in whatever way He desires. Brother, let's be dismissed. Be fair.